if you've got a particularly good memory, uh, you'll remember that way back last year, uh, in the build-up to Christmas, we spent an entire term looking at Genesis chapters 1 through to 3, where if you recall, we saw God's blueprint for the world that he designed and created. And really what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months is returning to those chapters and using them kind of as a foundation to explore issues such as identity, sexuality, gender, singleness, marriage, family life, and divorce. Now, just to warn you up front, This does have the potential to seriously mess with some of your thinking and a fair few of your preconceived ideas. Because the reality is, if we are going to seriously follow God's blueprint and build on his foundations for life, it's probably going to require ripping up some of our own foundations and a bit of the blueprint that maybe we have for the way we think things should go with our lives. So this series may well be a little challenging and a little difficult for many of us, but right out of the gate, I want to invite you to, at the very least, accept the challenge to hear God out on this stuff, because I'd suggest if you're willing to listen I reckon what you're going to find is God offers a much more compelling vision for life than the one currently being peddled by our culture. So what do you reckon? You up for the challenge? Yeah. Are you up for the challenge? Yeah. Yeah. A bit more enthusiasm is called for. Well, let's get going. To, To kick things off, I simply want to return to the very start of the story at the beginning of the Bible and remind you how all of this began. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I should probably just explain at this point that the heavens and the earth is a well-known Jewish idiom, which basically means from top to bottom. Uh, And so uh, what the writer's saying here is that God created everything. Uh, And so, rather frustratingly, we're not told precisely how he did it, but we can be sure of the fact that God was the master designer who created it all. And then if you skip down to the end of the chapter, after six days of God hard at work, we read this, verse 31, then God looked over all he had made. How much of what he'd made? all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Now, without wishing to sound pretentious or more learned than I really am, the Hebrew word that is translated here as good is the word tov. Uh, Can you say that with me? Tov. It's got a, a nice resonance to it. One more time. Tov. Tov has to do with the human senses, with taste, with touch, with sight, with smell, with sound. In the scriptures, this word tov is used to describe bread, wine, honey, 
perfume, a feast, a home, and shade under a tree on a hot Middle Eastern day. It can be translated as lovely or beautiful. The taste of fresh, well-made food in your mouth is tove. The smell of fresh air when you leave the city is tove. The sight of a work of art is tove. And we read that in the very beginning, God saw all that he had made and it was tove. It was good. And really, before we get into all of these slightly challenging topics through this series, I suggest this has got to be the starting point. Before we get into anything else, it's absolutely crucial that we come to terms with the fact that everything in the created order, at least in the very beginning, so food and drink, sound of music, the sound of children screaming, everything that God created, he called good. And that includes sex and beauty, attraction, the desire of lovers, touch, arousal. It's all good. In fact, we read it is very good. And I suggest that tells us a lot about God. You know, a lot of people think of God as this old, crotchety, grumpy man in the sky who's kind of mad and raging against the world and doesn't really want anybody to have any fun. Like, that looks fun. Stop it! Uh, I think that's how a lot of people view or imagine God. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. God is the creator of everything that is very good. God is a God of pleasure. God is a God of enjoyment. Now, I don't know what you think, but I suggest we get just this spectacular glimpse of this in how Jesus is portrayed in the pages of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is always eating and drinking, isn't he? Uh, I've got to say, one of the things that is my favorite thing about Jesus is he always seems to be up for a free meal, doesn't he? Uh, On one such occasion, uh, if you remember the story, it's found in the second chapter of John's Gospel. Jesus uh, is at a wedding having a great time as per when all of a sudden the host runs out of wine. Now, to me, that's unfortunate, but not a big deal. But in first century Eastern culture, that was a serious problem. And you see, the uh, host uh, uh, of such an occasion, the host of a wedding, uh, was expected to have more than enough wine and food and supplies for all of the guests. So Jesus, admittedly, after a little bit of arm twisting from his mother, steps in and turns water into wine. And to wrap up this whole story, John tells us this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Is that how you think of God's glory? Water into wine. Is that how you imagine Jesus at a wedding, goblet in hand, with a smile on his lips? I tell you, 
that's a picture of what God is like. He is a God of pleasure. He was in the beginning, and over millennia, nothing has changed. Uh, I love the line in Paul's letter to Timothy, where he says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, I think we desperately need a theology of enjoyment, not just when we talk about sex, but when we talk about food and drink and all of life. We need this Genesis-shaped worldview that basically says the whole world that's created by God, in the beginning, he called it very good. He enjoys it, and therefore so should we. He thinks it is incredibly good, and therefore so should we. And then to take this a step further, I think we need to enjoy all the very good stuff in creation actually as an act of worship to the true and living God. Food and drink and music and incredible scenery and beauty and sex. You see, God created it all. It it was all his idea. His intention was our pleasure and enjoyment. All of it is a gift from him to us, all of which should make us want to stand back and breathe it all in and well up with gratitude to the creator God who is so incredibly generous. Now, if you're still not convinced, Just rewind a paragraph or two in Genesis 1 where we read that God created human beings in his own image. We're told in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but The very first commandment in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. You know, one of the gripes people often have with the Bible is they complain it's just full of rules. And admittedly, there's a grain of truth in that. God, because he cares for us and because he designed everything in the first place, he does give us rules and guidelines to live by. And the first one is basically, have sex with your spouse a lot. Now, I know I'm a married man, so some of you might think, well, it's all right for him. But isn't that pretty amazing? But for too long, the whole message of the church about sex has been reduced down to a whole list of don'ts. Like, don't you porn Don't sleep together before you get married. Don't move in together. Don't do this. Don't do that. But it's fun. No, don't do it. Stop it right away. And all of that, which is right, by the way, in case you were wondering, it it is actually true. But the problem is the Bible doesn't lead with that stuff. 
God doesn't start with a negative command about sex. Quite the opposite. The first command couldn't really get a whole lot more positive. Be fruitful and multiply. And I should also just point out, all of this is before the fall into sin. Genesis 3 is when it all unravels and turns sour, which means that we were sexual before we were ever sinful. And so sex isn't something evil that we need to curb and deny. No, it is a good gift to enjoy. And because God designed us in the first place, and because he wants us to maximize our enjoyment, he also, in his kindness, lays out the right context for it, namely marriage, which we will come back and look at in a lot more detail in a few weeks' time. But sadly, I don't know if you've noticed, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. We don't live in paradise anymore. We live the wrong side of the fall, which means that now we are both sexual and sinful. And as a result, we carry around a whole load of pain and regret and baggage and shame. We, we, we live in this pretty distorted, messed up world where sex is abused left, right, and center. But you turn over with me to Romans chapter 1. It's really interesting what Paul writes here in this letter. In verse 18, he tells us that God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So, they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. And so, they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. It's like, ever since the fall, we've kept on blindly settling for the good creation over and above the even better creator. If you remember, way back in the Garden of Eden, Eve had this choice to make between the fruit and God, between the creation and the creator, and tragically, 
she chose to take a bite of the fruit. She chose the taste of food over the promise of the presence of God. And now, as a result, all of her children, i.e. all of us, are born with the exact same slant. And here in Romans, Paul illustrates this by alluding to a story that you may or may not know, the story of Israel and the exodus out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land. Now, if you're familiar with the story, there's that really interesting part where they escape from Egypt and they ask their captors for all of their silver and gold. And we're told that the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. Who was it who caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites? The Lord. It was the Lord who caused this. And they therefore gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. And so in the story, these impoverished slaves who've been victims of the most awful oppression overnight become unbelievably wealthy And it's all because of God's generosity to them. And then skip forward a few chapters and they find themselves in the desert in the middle of the wilderness. Moses is up Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments from God. And because he's been gone a while, they begin to get ever so slightly impatient. Exodus 32 verse 1 says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And we're told that Aaron caved into the pressure and said, okay then, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Question. Where did they even get those gold earrings from? I mean, immediately prior to this, remember, there have been slaves with absolutely nothing. Where did they get the gold? From the Lord, from God. It was the Lord who caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. In other words, they made an idol out of the very thing that was a gift from God. How crazy is that? but are we really any different? Listen, I think think there's this bias in all of us to turn gifts into gods. After all, we're hardwired for worship. Worship isn't a religious thing. Actually, it's deeper than that. It's a human thing. We all make something ultimate in our lives. We all make sacrifices for something or someone. Every single one of us gives our life away to something or someone who we believe to be greater than ourselves. As the novelist David Foster Wallace put it a few years before his tragic suicide, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
that there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Cheery little quote that. Now, the insidious thing about all of these different forms of worship isn't so much that they are evil or sinful. I think it's more that they are unconscious most of the time. As we've seen, we were made to worship. We were made to worship God. But because of sin, now we have this default setting to worship other things. We have this inbuilt tendency to take God's gifts and turn them into replacement gods. And sex is no exception. Remember how Paul put it in Romans 1, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, and so they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator himself. You know, I think it's pretty telling that Paul's first example of idolatry is to do with sex. Back in Paul's day, the goddess of sexuality was called Aphrodite. We have writings from the ancient Greeks saying that Aphrodite's temple was filled with a thousand prostitutes and people would travel from all over the known world to worship with one of them. In other words, to have sex with someone they barely knew. Does that sound at all familiar? Absolutely it does. I mean, I suggest Aphrodite is very much alive and well today, and she is not easy to please. She she demands we make sacrifices. We have to give up our innocence, our purity, often our body's well-being, and of course our freedom. Because when we turn sex into a god, it becomes this cruel, cruel, cruel tyrants. What's supposed to function as a gift for us to enjoy ends up becoming an addiction with a strange otherworldly power over us. You know, I think that's one of the crazy things about our generation. It's like we massively value the freedom of the individual. We value sexual freedom and self-expression perhaps more than any other generation in human history. For the handful of people in the room who 
can remember the 1960s. There are a few people in the room, myself not included, I, I must just note. But for those who were alive in the 60s, the whole sexual revelation in, uh, revolution in that decade, it, it made sexual freedom a right. Uh, and we live in the aftermath of that. It's now my right to have sex with whoever I want, however I want, whenever I want. And anything that curbs our sexual freedom or self-expression is seen as repressive, as bigotry, as hateful, as a denial of our identity of who we are. But I think we're just beginning to learn half a century later that what looked like freedom is actually slavery. That, that what looks like self-expression is actually often nothing more than dysfunction. You see, when sex is your God, you have to download porn. You have to sleep with your boyfriend. You have to let him or her touch you. You have to send compromising images to one another. You have to give in to your body's cravings. Even if you know deep down it's going to steal from your future, you have no choice because you are a slave. And so, although I think we like to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, that is not real freedom. It's actually a form of slavery that leads us down a path to all kinds of abuse. Whereas true freedom is the ability to do what God made you to do, to enjoy all the tove in the world as God in his kindness originally intended. At the end of the day, I think all of this really comes down to the question of who or what you trust the most. Let me think back again to Eve in the Garden of Eden. The, the garden was teeming with life and beauty. It was perfect in every way. But right in the middle of the garden was this tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God is crystal clear. He says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. When Eve sees the fruit hanging there on that tree, it looks so delicious, so tempting. And a serpent slithers along and whispers in her ear, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God knowing both good and evil. Essentially, what he's really saying is God is not good. God doesn't really care about your joy. Actually, he is mean and repressive. I mean, come on, you know better than God. So just go ahead and do what feels right to you. And who does Eve trust? the serpent. She thought he knew the path to joy 
better than God. But she was wrong, wasn't she? It resulted in death. And tragically, in the pursuit of life, she ended up missing out on life. Listen, I think we are missing the point. If we make not sinning simply all about self-control, like when we're tempted, we need to screw up our face and clench our fist and try as hard as we can to say no. Now that's fine. And it's better than just capitulating and giving in. But really, it's about faith more than anything else. It's about trusting God enough to give up your rights, to give up control, to submit to what he says. Ultimately, it's a matter of who you believe. Do you believe the serpent or do you believe God? It's all about what you trust. Do you trust your own feelings Or do you trust God's wisdom? Whereas the serpent whispers to us that the best sex is found in short, risky, promiscuous encounters with beautiful people, God says the best sex is always found when a man and woman say, till death do us part. It's found in this lifelong covenant relationship between a husband and and a wife. And so, as I say, ultimately, it all boils down to who you trust. Do you trust that God's way is the very best way to live? Do you trust him when he tells us that what looks like freedom is often actually slavery? And that repressing your sexual desire and saving it for your future husband or wife may just be the best thing to ever happen to you. Do you trust deep down that God's heart for you is good? That God's heart for you is joy? And that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, we can and will and do live free. Whether or not we ever get married, whether or not we ever experience all the things that maybe we could in this life. And so as I draw to a close, here are the things I want you to remember. First up, there is a creator God, and he made you. And he made the whole world for your enjoyment. And everything that is very good all around you bears his fingerprints. But right now, this world is distorted. It is not as it should be. And you are not as you should be. Something went badly wrong in the story of human history. But even then, through it all, God's love for you, the love of the creator for his creation, it continues to be unbending. And so, I simply want to invite you today to put your trust in him. Won't you 
choose to put your trust in the one who sent his son to die and rise again, to break once and for all the power of sin and death so that you can be ultimately free. You know, one day this entire universe will be set free from sin and death. And you can be part of that story, that story of healing and salvation, not only someday in the future, but actually right here, right now, if you invite Jesus to come into your life to reshape you from the inside out. All you have to do is repent. Uh, Repent, that's just a churchy word that effectively means turn away from sin. Turn away from your bondage to you fill in the blank and turn to Jesus as Lord. Lord over every area of your life. Really, more than anything else, my prayer today is that each one of us would find freedom in the healing, saving power of Jesus. Freedom from the carnage and pain caused by sex when it's torn out of God's hands. Freedom from the past and a completely clean slate for good measure. Freedom from the cynicism that many people feel towards sex and from the allure that many have to its power and freedom to see sex as a wonderful gift. Not as this dirty secret to be swept under the carpet and not as a God to be worshipped, but always and everywhere as a gift and a breathtakingly good one at that. I don't know, maybe you're here today. And for whatever reason, because of pain, because of abuse, because of sin, because of your family, because of your worldview, because of your church upbringing, for for whatever reason, sex for you, when you think about it or engage with it, is full of baggage and pain and regret and dread and guilt and shame. I want you to hear that sex is tove. It is very good. I believe today Jesus wants to heal the way that some of you think about this gift that God has given us. Or maybe for you it's the exact opposite. Maybe for you sex is everything. It's become like this God to you. It's what you are chasing after, thinking that if you can just get close enough, then you'll find life. But I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It is not going to happen, ever. Because as incredible as sex is, it cannot live up to all the hype, at least not for long. However good it is, it is not God. Actually, the same can be said for love or marriage, or having kids, or money, or fame, or success in your career, or food and drink. None of those things are God's, and we're never supposed to replace Him. From the very beginning, everything that is good in the world, everything that is tove, all of it was a means to an end, a wonderful gift to push you to something even better, or should I say someone 
even better. And we believe that someone isn't some vague, ambiguous idea out there somewhere. No, he's the person of Jesus Christ. And right now, I want to invite you to put your trust in him and enjoy him above all else.